Okay, welcome back. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. Again, if we forgot to do so, we are welcoming everyone online this morning who are joining us uh, that way. Uh, thank you. We, of course, wish you were here, but uh, we're grateful you're there listening, and we just invite everyone into the presence of the Lord as we open his word this morning. Uh, we are going to jump into Matthew chapter 3. It's a fairly short chapter, so we're going to read the whole thing together and then pray once again. Matthew chapter 3 begins this way. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. And John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him, and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins." But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, Every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn." but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan, uh, excuse me, then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him saying, I have need to be baptized by you and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, permit it to be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. Then Jesus, when he had been baptized, came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Lord, please add your blessing to the reading of your word, and may we open our hearts to receive all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in the Gospel of Matthew, and if you would like to get some uh, extra perspective on things, if you go to Mark chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, you will find the parallel passages to what's happening here in Matthew chapter 3, and it's very helpful and instructive. In fact, in Mark's gospel, he gives uh, in just the first eight verses or so, <clears throat> actually the first 11 verses, he takes into account what we've heard in 17 verses in Matthew's gospel, but Luke uh, expands the story a bit, so he provides a bit more detail, and he takes in 22 verses what uh, Matthew shared in 17. So, very helpful and instructive to go read these parallel gospel accounts, Mark 1 and Luke chapter 3. So we now find that from the end of chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 3, we've now breached a period of some 30 or so years, and we've now fast-forwarded to the day when John, the baptizer, is now out uh, carrying out his ministry. And when we go back to Luke's gospel, we can read about what happened when uh, the prophecies came to Zacharias and Elizabeth about the child that was being born to them, whose name would be John. And we know that Elizabeth was uh, Mary's cousin and that she was six months ahead in her pregnancy to Mary, who, of course, was carrying the baby Jesus in her womb. So now we're fast-forwarding to the beginning 
of John's ministry and uh, also the beginning of Jesus's ministry. So in those days, uh, chapter three, verse one, uh, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So John, rather than being out in the cities, in the city of Jerusalem, he was out by the Jordan River, out in the wilderness where he had been living. And uh, there are prophecies in the Old Testament that tell us that one like Elijah would come. And we'll, of course, read in just a moment the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40 about this man, John. And so John was out in the wilderness, living off the land. And if we saw him today in our, in our context, we would think he was a crazy old homeless man. Uh, he was wearing camel skin, camel's hair. He had a thick leather belt around his waist, uh, probably never bathing, wild hair, wild beard, and honey and locusts all stuck in his beard because that's what his diet was like. And people would have seen this man and just thought, this man is absolutely crazy, but he's out there preaching. And he's preaching in the name of God. And he's being the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And it says there, uh, his message in verse two, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's his message. It reminds me very much of the message that the Lord had given to Jonah, the prophet. And if you have ever read that story, that's four short chapters, something you should read. The Lord was calling Jonah to go to Nineveh, to a very wicked city, to the Assyrians, to preach to them because God wanted to save them. God loved this city. And the city of Nineveh was an exceedingly wicked city. They were a brutal and a violent people. And Jonah said, Lord, you need to send somebody else. I'm not going And the Lord said, yes, you are. And he said, no, I'm not. And so he began a journey a thousand miles in the opposite direction of the direction that the Lord told him. And he thought he could successfully run from God and avoid his calling. But God said, oh, no, you don't. And Jonah got on the boat to run and to flee. And we know the story that God caused a great storm to come up on the sea and the people became superstitious and they cast lots and they found out that it was Jonah that their superstition pointed to Jonah, but really it was the Lord revealing it. And then they threw Jonah overboard and he got swallowed by a whale, by a great fish. And then that, that great fish, if you look at the map, what that, that, that whale did is he swam all the way around to where Nineveh was. And in three days, he transversed several thousand miles and he took Jonah right to the beach and barfed him up on the beach. And he came out Uh, probably bleached by the stomach acid of the whale, even looking crazier than when he went in. And now he begins walking through the city of Nineveh and he shortened that message and he just said, in three days, God's gonna destroy this city. And that was his message. That was it. And yet a revival took place in that city because finally he went, even though he really went in begrudging obedience, and in fact, you could say he went in disobedience, but he preached the message that God had given him to preach and God did great things. Here we have John with this message. It's not a well-defined homiletical three-point message. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And what's happening, we know from this story, is that people from Jerusalem and Judea and all of the surrounding region are going out to the river, to the wilderness to find this crazy, wild hairy man with locusts and honey stuck in his beard preaching saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and anytime you see something like this happen you have to know it is the hand of God and that's what is happening here John is preaching this message and keep in mind he's preaching a message that is very seldom preached he's saying repent what is Repentance. Repentance means, (coughs) excuse me, that we change our minds. And as a result of changing our mind, we change our heart. And when we change our minds and our hearts, we change our behavior. Repentance means agreeing with God that He's right and that we are wrong. Repentance means immediately turning from what is wrong and turning to what is right. (coughs) Excuse me. I don't know if you're following the devotions that we're posting online 
for your enjoyment and for your encouragement. We're going through the book of Joshua, and this week on, um, I think it was Friday, right, Mitch, that you shared out of chapter 7 about the sin of, of uh, Ai, sin of Achan. And that was such a wonderful devotion. I would encourage you to go find that. That's on Facebook, on the church Facebook page. But there it was really attacking the same issue, that the Lord had brought judgment on the camp because of sin in the camp that had come through the person of Achan. (coughs) Excuse me. So what happened there is that Achan finally confessed his sin and repented. And in the course of that, God brought healing. And that's a great example, a great illustration of what happens when we do repent, that God brings healing. And unfortunately, in the case of Achan, he was judged severely for his sin, but God brought healing to the camp, to the people. And one of the things we need to understand about repentance is that repentance always brings healing. Repentance, when we are willing to be humble and to stand up and to say that we were wrong and that we've sinned and that the things we've been doing are wrong or think or the things we've been thinking are not in accordance or not in alignment with God's will and God's word, God will honor that. You see, making a mistake, sinning, is not the end of the world. It's the end of the world if we don't repent. The end of the world for us, that is. But if we do repent then we turn to the Lord. And if we turn to the Lord, God honors that. God blesses that. God forgives us. Repentance is essential to forgiveness. Repentance is essential to salvation. So John, as the forerunner of Christ, we're told in verse 3, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This is quoted out of Isaiah chapter 40. I'd like to read a few verses out of Isaiah chapter 40 for you so you can hear the context because when you hear the context, you're going to realize that these verses of Scripture are really kind of plastered throughout the New Testament. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out, and he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This is Isaiah chapter 40. And this reference here goes back to the ancient practice that when a king or a dignitary, someone of great importance would come to visit a region, they would send out an advance team. And their job essentially was highway maintenance. Their job was to smooth the path and the mountains and the hills and the bumps, they were to take them out and make it smooth. And the ones that had, uh, you know, what we would call potholes or ditches or those kinds of things, they would fill those in and make them smooth. And where the roads were taking crazy turns, they would do their best to straighten them out because it would make the journey of the king or the dignitary expeditious and free of bump and discomfort as they were traveling to their destination. And the the Lord takes this through the voice of his prophet Isaiah and says, prepare the way of the Lord. Listen, if we're going to do that for men, how much more so for God? And what does it mean to prepare the way of the Lord? Well, to prepare the way for the Lord to come, we have to plow the fallow ground of our hearts. We have to get ready for the word of the Lord, and that comes through repentance. And so John is coming as a plow in hard, fallow ground, plowing that ground with the the word of repentance. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And John was being fully obedient to what God had told him to do. In fact, back when um, it was prophesied to Zechariah who John would be, I'm sure that John no doubt knew this, his parents must have told him, but in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, Here was the prophecy given by the Lord to Zacharias about who John would be. 
for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him, him being Christ, in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Imagine that being the prophecy over you while you were in your mother's womb. And yet that was the prophecy given for John. And now John is fulfilling that prophecy. He is carrying it out before our very eyes. And John knows that he's speaking about his cousin, the Lord Jesus. And as John is out there doing this day after day, week after week, preaching the gospel of repentance, living in this manner, speaking to the people, he doesn't know when Jesus is coming, but he knows that Jesus is coming. And so he is preparing the way for the Lord Jesus. In verse 4, now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. And it's interesting, one commentator wrote this and it caught my eye. It said both Elijah and John had stern ministries in which austere garb and diet confirmed their message and, and here was the part that caught my eye, and condemned the idolatry of physical and spiritual softness. Let me say that again. Their ministries condemned the idolatry of physical and spiritual softness. Now, I don't think it's any mistake that what's happened in our country this week and what I just shared a few minutes ago dovetails right into this message. Again, I'm not smart enough to make those things happen. But when I read this, I thought, yes, Lord, this is exactly what you're speaking to your church. That if there's an idolatry within the church of Jesus Christ, it's this. We are pursuing comfort and convenience over spiritual maturity. We have, as it says here, pursued the idolatry of physical and spiritual softness. When I think about this dear brother suffering for the Lord, he just came to know the Lord there where our friends are ministering. And I think of the price he's paying for simply saying the name of Jesus. I think of how soft we have become in the 21st American church in the United States. How we need the voice of a man like John today because indeed he would be a voice crying in the wilderness. Well, to continue on in verse five, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to John. John was drawing quite a crowd. John could have easily been puffed up in pride saying, wow, look at, look at me drawing all these people. But John knew in his heart that it was God himself who was drawing the hearts of men and women to him. And he was preaching a message that wasn't popular, but it was necessary. And by God's grace, people were hearing and responding. And it says in verse six, and these people as they were coming were being baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, to put context on this for us, people being baptized in this day and age was not common. In fact, it was primarily a practice used for when a person was converting from being a Gentile to becoming a Jew. So a part of that ritual conversion process would be to be baptized or to be immersed in water, saying that I'm washing away my Gentile heritage and I want to become like a Jew, meaning a person who has the heritage of God and I'm blessed by God. So now these people are coming as John is preaching and they want to be baptized for repentance of sins. You see, their hearts are being plowed. They're being convicted. They are turning to the Lord. They're getting ready for the coming of Jesus. One of the things I wish we knew, but we will never know until perhaps we get to heaven, is how many of these people that John was preaching to and who were coming and responding and getting baptized, how many of these people, when Christ came on the scene, turned to Christ and followed him? How many of those people became his disciples? So John was baptizing people as they were confessing their sins and repenting. 
verse 7, but he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to him in his baptism, and he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Now, why would John say that? I mean, these people are coming, right? How does he not know that they're, they're coming perhaps in, the, in like manner to repent and to turn from their sins? Well, the Pharisees were known for being uh, religious zealots in the sense of they were very diligent about keeping the law, the jot and the tittle of the law. They were very concerned about appearances. And the Sadducees were what would have been considered in that day the liberals. Uh, They were the people who did not fully believe in the word of God. They didn't believe in angels. They only believed in the first five books of Moses. They didn't accept the prophets. So they had a very convenient faith and religion, if you will. And so uh, now we find the Pharisees and the Sadducees from this point forward in the Gospels uniting together against the Lord Jesus. That is something that will become apparent as we move along. But John begins to address them because he suspects that they are not there for genuine reasons. He's saying, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The wrath to come that he's speaking of is the wrath of God against sin. This is a wrath that's fair and well-deserved from God's point of view. It's a wrath that is often ignored or disregarded because it's not immediate. It is to come. And too often, isn't this true of us, right? If something is not in the immediate future, or if we think, well, it's off in the distant future, and we don't know when it's going to come, so we just kind of put it out of our minds. And here... People are ignoring the wrath of God. That's why John had to come. That's why John had to preach these things in this way. The wrath of God is not any less certain just because it is delayed and coming at some point in the future. The wrath of God, as we understand it through the scriptures, is terrible because it is God's wrath against sin. This wrath cannot be stood against And the only way to survive the wrath of God is to flee from it. How do we flee from it? By repenting and turning from our sins and turning to the Lord. You see, to flee means immediate action. That's what the word repent means. Repent means immediate action. To flee implies swift action. To flee implies straight movement with no diversions. It means doing it and doing it now. Therefore, verse 8, bear fruits worthy of repentance, he says to these people. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. What's he saying to them? You're trusting in your spiritual heritage. You're trusting in the fact that because you say you're children of Abraham, you're okay. Let me put it into a modern vernacular for us. Simply because you go to church... You might believe you're saved, but that doesn't mean you're saved. Hopefully you come to church because you're saved. But simply coming to church does not mean you are saved. And you know, folks, as much as we want to raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, and I hope we do, and I hope you have, and I hope that you will continue to do so, we don't want our children growing up thinking that because we take them to church that they're saved. You see, the point has to come for them, where they make a step of faith on their own where they choose to believe in Christ and follow him. And hopefully our example has encouraged them to do that. And so he says here to these scribes and these Pharisees, these Sadducees, do not think because you're children of Abraham that you're okay. Listen, God can raise up children to Abraham from stones. He wants people of genuine faith, bear fruits worthy of repentance. There's the fruit of, And there's the root. You see, the fruit that comes from a tree comes because the tree is healthy, and the tree is healthy because there's a healthy root system. And the fruit is always borne out from the health of the tree. And when he says, bear fruits worthy of repentance, you see, genuine repentance always reveals if it was genuine or not by the fruit that comes from it. You see, when we repent and come to Christ, and we are washed in the blood of the Lamb, and we are forgiven... Something happens, right? Our lives are changed. We become different people. We become people who think differently and act differently because of the word of God, because of the gospel of Christ. For example, if there were 
dastardly things we did in our life before we came to know Christ. We don't do those things anymore. We flee from those things and we do the things that are right according to the word of God. There has to be a change. There has to be a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of behavior that happens with our conversion, with our repentance. Real repentance will show itself in life. It has to be a matter of living repentance, not just talking repentance. Do you remember the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3? Each church gets a unique message dealing with its specific issue, yet one message is given uh, to five of the seven churches, and that message is repent for those five churches who were not pleasing to the Lord. Now in verse 10 here it says, Now even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. At first glance, this may seem like kind of a strange or an odd verse, but it has been well observed that there is an allusion here to a woodsman who, having marked a tree for excision, lays his axe at its root, strips off his outer garment, that he may wield his blows more powerfully and that his work may be quickly performed." Laying an axe to the root of the tree means you're getting ready to cut the tree down because the tree no longer has a purpose. Perhaps it's dead. Perhaps it's not producing fruit. Perhaps that tree now needs to be used for a different purpose, such as firewood or even to make furniture. But laying the axe to the root of the tree means the tree is about to be taken out and taken down. And John is saying that that is what is happening for the nation of Israel. That is what is about to happen as the Lord Jesus comes on the scene. In fact, he says in verse 11, I'm baptizing you with water unto repentance. But he, who's he, the Messiah, Jesus, the one who is coming, he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I love that verse because John is now telling us who Jesus is and what he will be doing. In fact, John says here that I'm baptizing with water unto repentance, and that's good. The instrument or the means was water. The object or the issue was repentance from sin. But he says, he who is coming after me is mightier than I. And he expresses incredible humility by saying, I'm not even worthy to be a servant in his house, the servant who, when you come in the door of the house, would be there to take your sandals off and wash your feet. John's saying, I'm not even worthy for him to do that. That that would be a great privilege to be able to do it, but I'm not even worthy for that job, the lowest job in the house. He's saying that man, he, Jesus, the Messiah, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You see, the instrument of the baptism was not water. It was the Holy Spirit and fire. The objective, we learn later, was power for service. You see, service in our flesh is no good. It doesn't work. Indeed, even John says in John chapter 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Service to the Lord is in the power of the Holy Spirit is the only way God's true work can be accomplished. Work in and through the power of the Holy Spirit is the only way that lasting fruit will be born out in our lives. J.C. Ryle, whom I love, and I would encourage you anytime you see a book by him to pick it up and read it, J.C. Ryle said, there is another thing yet, and that is the baptizing of our hearts by the Holy Spirit. There must not only be the work of Christ for us, but also the work of the Holy Spirit in us. There must not only be a title to heaven by the blood of Christ, but also a preparedness for heaven wrought in us by the Spirit of Christ. Let us never rest until we know something by experience of the baptism of the Spirit. The baptism of water is a great privilege, but let us see to it that we also have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
John goes on to say in verse 12, his winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Another illustration that is a little bit lost on us since we don't do these things today, but when he's talking about the winnowing fan and the threshing floor, he's talking about the ancient practice that still exists in some countries where when the wheat or the grain is harvested and they bring the stalks of grain to what's called the threshing floor, typically it's an elevated place that has a good crosswind, they would take something like pitchforks and throw it up into the air, and as it fell, it would begin to break away the husk or the shell that's protecting the grain. In fact, uh, probably the easiest way to think of it is if you've ever eaten popcorn, and you get those little things stuck in your teeth, that's the chaff, that's the husk that contained the grain that you're eating. And so a winnowing fan was something akin to a pitchfork, but often it would be a lot finer. Think of like a giant comb, whereas the grain was falling off, they would take the grain and continue to throw it up into the air. And as that was happening, the husk or the shell would fly off in the wind because the grain was heavy and it would fall back to the ground, but the shell or the husk would blow away or blow off to one side. And then as this process was uh, accomplished, this threshing of the grain, what would happen is, as everything was uh, put off to the side, both the, the unusable stalks as well as the, the husk or the shell of the grain, that would all be swept up and gathered into a, a pile and burned. But the grain itself would be gathered together and taken, of course, into the storehouse. And so the image he's given here is this is what's going to happen with lives. It will be made apparent who are the Lord's, those who would believe in and trust the Lord. They would be like the grain that's taken into the storehouse or into the barn, that he would thoroughly clean out the threshing floor, that is those who would not believe in Christ. In fact, this verse here in Matthew chapter 3, verse 12 is a bit of a uh, foreshadowing of what's going to happen at the end of the age when Jesus judges the world. And it says he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. In Matthew chapter 13, which we'll get to in a few weeks, He's speaking of the parable of the wheat and the tares, and he says something very similar. He says, let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather the tares. The tares were artificial wheat. They looked like wheat. They smelled like wheat. But if you tried to taste it, it would be very bitter, and it did not taste like wheat. So it's like a counterfeit. And he says, I will say to the reapers, first gather the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. A very similar idea to what he's saying here in chapter 3. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, something that also helps to uh, solidify this image in our minds. He says, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which, we, which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So illustrating the idea, uh, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. The wood, hay, straw are the things that are going to burn. And it's pointing to the fact of how we build our lives and what we build our lives upon. Are we building our lives upon the rock or are we building our lives upon the sand? Are we constructing our lives with materials that are of eternal nature or are we building our lives around things that only have temporal value? How do we understand that? Well, listen, anything that can burn is of temporal value. How much of our lives is spent developing and building around temporal things? Where is our investment in the things that are eternal? And he says he will gather his wheat 
into the barn. That means those who are his. The Lord knows those who are his. So that's John's prophecy of the Messiah. In verse 13, we find now that Jesus comes on the scene. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Why are you coming to me? I mean, I would have said the same thing, wouldn't you? Jesus, dude, no, baptize me here. I'll, I'll even get in for you. I'll squat down. You just take my head and push me under and hold me down for as long as you want. In fact, hold me down for a long time because I need a lot of help, Lord. And Jesus says, no, permit it to be so because this is to fulfill all righteousness. And then John allowed him. You see, Jesus in his coming, you see, this is the beginning of his ministry, the baptism by John. Jesus was coming to identify with people. We look at passages like Philippians 2, where it talks about how Jesus came and humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus came to be like us. It says he was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. You see, Jesus came to identify with men so that we could understand that the incarnation, that God coming to dwell among us would be fulfilled as Jesus came and presented himself like all the people. Jesus was not coming to repent of sin because he was sinless. He had not sinned. But he was coming to say, I'm here to be baptized to identify with men. And I am here to fulfill righteousness. And in fact, going back to what John said earlier of the scribes and the Pharisees, let your, uh, your repentance, let your, right, your righteousness bear fruit. Jesus was going to demonstrate that fruit from the very get-go of his life. So permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Paul wrote these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he, that is God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus was coming here to be baptized at the beginning of his ministry so that righteousness would be fulfilled. Do you know what happens? In Romans chapter 6, and I'm not going to go there this morning, but it says that when we go through baptism, the, the rite of water baptism here, when we are saying, I want to be identified with Christ, we are saying that I was buried with him in his likeness and raised to, to new life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's the symbolism of going underneath the water. The old has passed away, coming up, the new has come. All things have been made new. That's what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 5.1. And he says that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was the only fully, truly righteous human being who ever lived and walked the face of of the planet. When he had been baptized, we're told in verse 16, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, first of all, people say, Where's the Trinity? We never see it in the scriptures. Oh, we see it all over the place. Here's one of them, right? A voice came from heaven. We know that this was the voice of God the Father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, speaking of the son. And we just read that he saw the spirit of God descending uh, from heaven and alighting like a dove upon him. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit right here in verses 16 and 17. This is just one of many places that we see it throughout the scriptures. So as Jesus came up and immediately the Spirit of God came upon him, this is to prepare him for his ministry. But as the Spirit of God came upon Jesus, so the Spirit of God must come upon us. In fact, just to back up a bit, as John was saying that there was be one coming after him who would baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You might say, what is he talking about and when did that happen? I want you to take a moment, turn over to Acts chapter 1, 
And let's just take a look at some of these things. There are many places we could go. This is a whole study in and of itself, but we're just going to take a look at a couple of passages where these things that John is speaking of here happened. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4, it says, And being assembled together with them, this is Jesus having appeared to the disciples after his resurrection, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You see, Jesus is here referring to and fulfilling that which John spoke in, back in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. So when they said, when... He said, don't worry about when. Then in verse 8, he says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see, Jesus is saying that when I baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, you're going to be witnesses. You're going to have power to do what I want you to do. Or if I put it a little bit more simply, you will now be empowered to live the life of a Christian because of the baptism or the coming upon of the Holy Spirit. You see, a year ago at this time, we did a series, uh, first time ever we did a series that we haven't done just a straight expositional teaching, but we did a series on the Holy Spirit. And we talked about this. It's all on the website if you want to go grab it. But we need the power of the Holy Spirit. And you see, this has been, we've been robbed of what this is all about by the excesses of uh, the Pentecostal movement that has taken the work and the ministry of the Spirit and has made it something that it's not. They've made it a spectacle. They've made it a sideshow when the Lord Jesus has intended that the, the baptism of this Holy Spirit, the coming upon of the Spirit upon his disciples was meant to empower us to be his witnesses. It's not meant to be a spectacle. It's meant to be enabling us to do the work of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you turn over to uh, Acts chapter 2, you see in chapter 2, verse 1, where the fulfillment of what John said in Matthew 3.11 is happening in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Now, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. Now, Pentecost was the feast of first fruits occurring 50 days after the Passover. And Jesus chose this day to be the day that the Holy Spirit would come upon his disciples, would come upon his church, and that this feast of first fruits would be changed from simply being about the time of, of the, the harvesting of the grain and the first fruits being brought into the storehouses of God. People would bring the first fruits of their harvest into the house of God and offer it to the Lord and then keep the rest for themselves. And Jesus says, no, this day I'm going to change the meaning, just like I did at Passover, when Jesus sat in the, the Passover meal with his disciples, what we now call the Lord's table, and he changed the meaning of it, and he said, no, this third cup, the cup of redemption, this is the cup of, of salvation, this is the, the cup of my blood, this is the new covenant. And he said, I will no longer drink of this cup or eat of this meal again until we eat it together in, in the kingdom of God, pointing forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 21, I believe it is. And on that day, what will happen is that fourth cup in the Passover meal was called the cup of consummation. And he's saying on that day, when we're all sitting around my table, we will drink that cup together and celebrate being together in heaven and that the work of God has been fully accomplished. And in like manner, Jesus took the feast of Pentecost and he says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, the first fruits of the work of the Holy Spirit and of salvation coming to the church that will become evident to all. So here in Acts chapter two, verse one, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. You see, they didn't know it was going to be on the day of Pentecost. Jesus did, but he said, you wait. 
And as they were waiting, the day of Pentecost came. They were together. They were in one accord. They were praying, worshiping the Lord, waiting upon the Lord as Jesus had commanded. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, we could go on and and have a teaching here, but what happened at that moment is the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they went out because the city of Jerusalem was filled with pilgrims from everywhere who came to worship the Lord. They went out, simple fishermen, uneducated men, and spoke in the language of the people who needed to hear, unknown languages to the speaker, but known to the people under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and they preached to them, and they heard the word of the Lord. That's what John is talking about here, and that's what Jesus did. But you see, like so many things, this was the beginning of his ministry, and three years later, he finally brought it to pass. I will baptize you with water into repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not worthy. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Some have said that they believe that the fire part here is uh, the judgment of sin. That may be so, but I find it interesting that on the day of Pentecost, that as the Holy Spirit came, tongues of fire, or what appeared to be tongues of fire, came and rested upon the disciples. And I believe that's what it was talking about, that this was a prophecy of the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit would be given by Jesus to his church. Now, if Jesus gave this to his church in the first century, and there are those, of course, who Uh, I would call them cessationists who say that that was for then, but that's not for today because after the Bible was written, we no longer need the Holy Spirit in that manner. Uh, I don't see any evidence for that. I think we we need the Holy Spirit in like manner and even more so today uh, than then. Yes, we have the word of God, but we still have the same need to be empowered for service. We still have the same need to witness to people. Listen, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you're standing before someone and you realize a door just opened to minister to them. But in fear, you don't. Because you're afraid of what do I say? How do I say it? How do I convince them? Uh, What if they make fun of me? What if they don't like me? What if they don't want to be my friend anymore? What if their family and like our, again, like our dear brother over in the Middle East, what if they reject me? You see, the the filling of the power of the Holy Spirit, he gives us the boldness in the moment. He gives us the words to say. These are all fulfillment of things that Jesus said in John chapters 14, 15, and 16. The Holy Spirit will give you utterance in the moment that he will tell you what you need to say. We need the power of the Holy Spirit just as much today as we did then. Why don't we have it? I'm not sure that I have the answer to that other than perhaps just simple fear and unbelief on our part. But it said here, he will baptize you. And I believe that. And I hope that you will believe that this morning. That we need this aspect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You see, we are given the Holy Spirit at salvation, as a pledge, as a surety, as a down payment, as a deposit, that God will be faithful to do what he said he would do. We have the amazing promise in Philippians 1.6 that says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. How do we know that? Because he's given us of his spirit. He's told us that all throughout the scriptures. He's given us of his spirit. There's the indwelling of the spirit and there's the filling of the spirit. The indwelling of the Spirit is just so we know, hey, man, I'm a child of God. He's with me. He's promised me he would never leave me or forsake me. But there's also the coming upon, the filling of the Spirit that we need, the empowerment to be his witnesses. And I believe in light of where we are today in history and in light of the events this past week, that now more than ever we need the filling, the baptism, whatever you want to call it, the ministry of the Spirit in our lives. So as we close this morning, we're just going to sing a song or two and worship the Lord. And I hope that you will just simply pray and reach out to the Lord and ask him to fill you as we see here in the scriptures. And ask that he would empower you and empower me and empower us as his church and not just us 
It's, this is not a we for and no more kind of a thing. We want the Holy Spirit to fall upon the church of Jesus Christ in a new and a fresh way so that we can go out and do the work of God, that we can be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth so that we can make disciples of all nations in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ because the time is coming, the day is coming when the world will no longer listen and will God, God will have no point, no choice at that point but to take us out. And the scriptures tell us that when that happens, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 warns us of this, that when the church is removed, when the, the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in and through his church is removed, God is going to unleash hell on earth. And the only hope at that point for those who are left behind will be that they, they turn to Jesus Christ during that time of the tribulation or they will be judged at the great white throne judgment and it will be infinitely harder for people to believe in Christ during those days than it is right now. So while it is still called today, we need to be the people of God. And so Lord, we just pray this morning and thank you for this time together and ask you that you would even now, Lord, in the weakness of our flesh and even in the weakness of our unbelief, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Show us how to walk forward in the power and the fullness of your Spirit. And Lord, we know it's not something weird, but it is supernatural. And may we be open to all that you want to do in and through us. And as we worship you for just a couple of moments this morning, may you fill us afresh and anew. Lord, if there's repentance that needs to take place in our lives right now for sin, then may this be a time of confession and turning and walking in a straight line to you. May this be a time, Lord, where you just refresh us as your people, renew our faith for the days ahead. Lord, let us be lights in the midst of the crooked and the perverse times that we live in. May we be lights of the gospel. May we be a city set on a hill with bright lights shining. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.